Hey there, I hope you're going to enjoy this. Another episode with Bezan Denier, whom I've been following on Twitter for a long time. He's a real knowledgeable Austrian economist, Bitcoin, a hardcore maximal, hardcore Bitcoin maximalist, and really knowledgeable. I enjoy, really enjoyed this talk. We talked about, you know, the origins of money, Austrian economics, you know, how he came to Bitcoin, Austrian economics, uh, hard money, scarcest money, monetary properties, gold. Um, you know, I talked about, you know, what is his vision? What what are the misconceptions about Bitcoin? We talked about the stock to flow ratio, critical adoption rate, the necessary urgent um, uh, user experience. And yeah, we talked about, you know, a lot of other topics such as technological innovations. Once, you know, Bitcoin becomes root layered, uh, what does society, civilization, prosperity look like? Um we talked about you know stock to flow ratio of, of Plan B, a hundred trillion dollar man, um, yeah, and um, it uh, really really inspiring. And hope you're going to enjoy this as much as I did. Please give it a like, share, uh, distribute, um, subscribe, follow me, write me a positive review on any uh, podcast platform or on my YouTube channel. And thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for your support. And Hope to, yeah, to give, bring you more uh, valuable content um, as usual. Thank you so much. Welcome to the Total Connector Show. My name is Kevin Davani. My very, very special guest today is Bezant from Sweden. Bezant, thank you so much for your time coming on my show for the first time. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Bazan, uh, what I've been following you uh, for some quite some time, and um, I haven't had to be honest with you now the, the time to read all the, the lengthy articles you wrote on Austrian economics, principles of Austrian economics, which I must say, you know, we we never had the the chance also, you know, to learn uh, uh, in school, let alone in universities, uh, because they're all indoctrinated with you know whatever you want to call it, Keynesianism, modern. Uh, money theory or whatever or <laughs> so it's uh so it's uh, very you know destructive um uh, uh theories that we are learning actually and and being applied in day-to-day -day lives and we see the symptoms so what i you know my my uh my podcast is about of course bitcoin and austin economics i myself you know never studied economics i studied law but because of bitcoin i came into the you know into this uh mm. into the logical rational uh, uh, theories or understanding comprehension of of economics. So, let me now. Uh, first of all, would you would you introduce yourself a little bit? Your path, how you got to into Austrian economics in connection with Bitcoin, and what what is your like? What's what's the what's those values that you appreciate? Sure, <clears throat> I actually started off not with Austrian economics. I came for Bitcoin first and ended up with Austrian economics. So. Austin economics is a rather new phenomenon for me. I'm still learning a lot. I'm reading uh, Karl Menger, Principles of Economics right now. And these articles that you talked about, they are summarizing his book, which is uh, it's covering uh, virtually the whole, uh, the whole school of thought, uh, I should say. So my background is in finance. I was studying five years in Stockholm School of Economics. I moved on, and as you say, it, it is this uh, Keynesian, um, ideology. We, I mean, we were sitting, uh, drawing these diagrams, uh, unemployment and inflation, and just if you increase inflation, the unemployment will disappear and all this. So I've been doing that as well. 
Uh, didn't learn a thing about Austrian economics. I never heard about Karl Menger or Ludwig, Ludwig von Mises in my five years. Maybe that's partly, partially my fault. But still, I was uh, studying for five years, continued to work as a consultant for one of the large banks here in the city. And it was during this period where I was a consultant that I, I also stumbled upon Bitcoin uh, and, and cryptocurrencies uh, more broadly. Um, so I started to get really, really interested in that. Went down the rabbit hole as most of us did, you know, reading uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, listening to his talks. Uh, and I started to think more and more about money. And I was really fascinated by the whole concept. Um, so I can actually, if you want, I can detail my, the evolution of how I thought about money and what I think about money right now. Please because do that, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, because that's what I do now on Twitter. I, I rant about money mostly. Um, so I was, uh, I, I have two good quotes here for, from uh, Karl Menger that I can, uh, I can bring up first because it kind of, it kind of puts the essence of, of, uh, how I think about money. So here, here, here it goes. Here's the first quote. Men have been led with increasing knowledge of their individual interests, each by his own economic interests without convention, without legal compulsion even without any regard to the common interest, to exchange goods destined for exchange for other goods, equally destined for exchange, but more saleable. And then he has a second quote. When the relatively most saleable commodities have become quote unquote money, the great event has in the first place the effect of substantially increasing their originally high saleableness. So, you know, according to, to Menger, uh, he's describing just that money is just the intermediary good of indirect barter. There's nothing magical about money. It's not a social construct. It's not uh, something that we collectively imagine. It's just the intermediary good of indirect barter. And this for me was really, it was a really inciting, um, it was a nice insight because it kind of explained what I saw later when I read other articles from, for example, Nick Sabo. He has his uh, Shelling Out, The Origins of Money, where he uh, he details the Native Americans use of seashells and how the European settlers came. They came with a different skill set with better technology. So they were able to mass produce these seashells, uh, causing, of course, uh, inflation on the Native Americans. I also read Saifrina Mu's book, The Bitcoin Standard, which is uh, really great. And in it, he also has various examples of where uh, money that once was very hard to produce suddenly becomes easy to produce. And uh, I was really fascinated by this dynamic, how, how money can be really hard to produce, and then suddenly it's easy to produce. And, you know, the, the holders of that money that once was uh, hard to produce, they're faced then with a choice. Either they stay holding on to this money, and they face, you know, abject poverty because of this uh, extreme high inflation, or they make a decision to change to a harder money, which they all do. And this is the reason why we, once when we saw hundreds of various monies all over the world, we then continued to see only a, a dozen monies and then just a few monies. And in the end, we only saw gold and silver as money. So I was fascinated by this dynamic that we can go from many to just one, basically, which is gold. Uh, and this is uh, the dynamic that Saifina Mus captures in his book and also uh, that Nick Sabo uh, is touching also. And it's the concept of hard money and easy money. This concept caused me to, uh, to continue this research. I was researching all these kind of historical monies or primitive monies, if you will, like uh, 
seashells, glass beads, copper, you know, furs, horses, camels, sugar, cotton cloths, and all these. And I tried to I tried to find sources, historical sources, uh, that describe how they were used as money. And then I tried to explain why they are no longer used as money. Because you know, no matter where we go today, you cannot pay for stuff with salt anymore. You cannot pay for stuff with uh, uh, with uh, seashells. And uh, yeah, so that's what my articles are about mostly. I can mention one uh, one funny thing also. I was actually my my real name is not Besantenier. It's just my Twitter handle from a venture I had before called BD Ratings. I was running a cryptocurrency ratings agency, so I was rating all these altcoins. And um, this was before I had like the proper view of money. So I was uh, I was one of the strictest uh, ratings agencies in the space, of course. Uh, I competed with Wise Ratings, who famously put a higher grade rating on Ripple than they did on Bitcoin. So they were scoring in the space. This uh, this made me want to want to try to compete with them. So I, I started my own ratings agency. I published a lot of, of ratings. Most the absolute majority were sells. A few uh, a few hold, a few buys. But it was during this time that I stumbled upon this view of money that the hard money survives basically. So then it felt really futile to sit there and try to spend hundreds of hours researching the technical aspects of various shitcoins and the centralized. Uh, with centralized uh, aspects and all this. So it was really a waste of time. And I pivot, I, I moved uh, to research this kind of phenomenon about money and uh, about monetary hardness and, and easiness instead. So the, uh, let me, two points uh, here. Um, first of all, let's go right into the core of, of Bitcoin and w because it is, uh, you know, uh, what is hardness, the hardest, I always say, you know, Bitcoin is the hardest and scarcest money. So it, so, so good money or real money should have monetary properties. It's not only just about illusion or a, a contract, social, but now for the first time we understand money must have monetary properties, which are? Yeah, the, the money must have certain prerequisite properties like divisibility, funnability, durability and all this, but they are just prerequisites. The most important property money needs today is hardness. And the reason is that today we produce so much from our factories. Uh, we have such a high surplus so we can save for the future. Everything that we produce today, we don't consume it immediately. Because if we were to consume it, it doesn't really matter that it's dilutable, that people can produce more of it and it has a high inflation. But since now we produce so much, this property becomes the most fundamental one. And this is the only reason that we saw gold emerging as the as the, the, you know, the last money in existence before the fiat experiments. Um, all other monies died because they were more easy to produce and they were more easy to dilute the existing stock of. So monetary hardness is extremely important. And this can, this can be applied also to cryptocurrencies, of course. And this is what many fail to grasp when they start with cryptocurrencies. They see all these, these shiny coins uh, with varying properties and they think about the diversification and idiosyncratic risks with each. Maybe proof of work has one type of risk, maybe staking has another type of risk and so on. But what people should focus on is monetary hardness. How easy it is, is it to produce more units in relation to existing stock? And this is where I would say Bitcoin is, uh, of course, the, 
I think the world has two hard monies. I think that's gold and that's Bitcoin. Those are the only two hard monies in the world. Everything else is easy to produce in relation. And we'll see if Bitcoin uh, survives another 10 years, which I think it will, then uh, it's arguably the hardest money on earth, of course, uh, after two more halvings. And one, another interesting thing with Bitcoin, it doesn't have the exact same properties as gold. Holders of the gold money, they can't change the chemical properties of gold. You can't really, you can't socially destroy the good monetary properties of gold, no matter how much you wish it. It will always be hard to produce. But with Bitcoin, we can actually destroy it if we are stupid enough. And if we tinker with the supply cap, the 21 million cap and so on. So Bitcoin, it's important that we as full node runners, I run a full node, for example, that we are always vigilant to stupid uh, pull requests to, uh, you know, proposals to change stuff that shouldn't be changed. Bitcoin is only hard money if it, if it remains, you know, really stable in the sense that we will never let it be more than 21 million Bitcoins. We will never let it centralize, which is uh, like a shortcut to further dilution. Even if, even if my pull node guards this uh, shelling point of 21 million Bitcoins, if I fail to guard against centralization, it doesn't matter because if it's centralized, my full node might not do that much good anymore. And some powerful entity might be able to dilute it in the future, hypothetically. So we need to keep track of 21 million max cap. We need to keep track of to always have it be decentralized. And we always need to have it be hard money. And with this, I mean, even if we keep Bitcoin, uh, we keep the 21 million cap, we have Bitcoin uh, decentralized, but we start to tinker with the monetary properties of Bitcoin in another way. So we can also hurt the project. One example is Ethereum. Ethereum has had a, a five Ether block reward before, like back in the days. Then they changed it to three Ether per block. And then they changed it again, some central um, decision making to two Ether per block. This is you know, a naive viewer might view this as well. Yeah, they are lowering the supply, so this must be good. Ether must be hard money, but no, if you change the, the monetary policy like that, without any, you know, no one had a say in it, basically. You, they always quote consensus, but no one had a say. So if you can change the monetary policy so drastically, they can for sure change it again in the future. And this is what I always guard against in Bitcoin as well. Don't put you know, buttons on your money that can be used later to, for, for bad purposes. Because any future, even, even if we were to, let's say it like this, let's take the Ethereum example, they lowered the total supply by lowering the issues, which sounds good uh, initially. But since they did this, even in, in the future, they can come, with, come up with some reasons that they need to increase it again. They will always quote some urgent, some urgent like we need to increase the security the stakers need more money the developers need to be paid to maintain maintain the code base and so on there will always be some kind of you know urgency uh, that it will come wrapped in and so it increases the chances of future inflation that's why we need to keep bitcoin uh, hard by not messing with the monetary policy at all so so that's how also that's a little bit how uh, Austrian economics tie into Bitcoin also. Austrian, the Austrian school is, from what I know, it's the only school that where you don't need inflation, or indeed inflation is not seen as anything good at all. Um, inflation is just uh, uh, messing with the, with the 
calculations that I make with my own money. Um, I think it was Saifelina that compared, you know, if, if we mess with inflation, it's the same thing as we try to change the, the centimeter or the inches on rulers to uh, try to get a, a larger output from our carpenters, something like this. Uh, so in the Austrian school, inflation is nothing that increases output at all. On the, it's on the other hand, something that destroys output because it's harder to, to compute, it's harder to plan for the future. Um, so the Austrian school is definitely compatible with the view of hard money, money that has extremely low or maybe even <coughs> zero inflation. What do you think about the, um, um, if we bring in the, the topic of stock to flow and, and inflation, <clears throat> disinflation and, you know, stock to flow ratio, um, uh, so maybe can you can just describe or explain in your own words what the stock to flow ratio is? Yeah, the stock to flow ratio is uh, directly tied to hardness, the hard money and easy money. Easy money has uh, low stock to flows. Uh, no, let's let's see. Yeah, low stock to flows. Hard money has high stock to flows. So the hardest money on earth today, one can argue, is gold. The gold, the annual production of new gold units is around 2% of existing supply. Uh, and that means the stock to flow ratio is 50 for gold. Isn't Bitcoin, it like 62 or something? Oh yeah, it, it doesn't matter, it, but like much the, the highest number, right? So, it's the highest. And that's the important thing. You need to be the highest because it doesn't make sense to save your money or your wealth in a money that has a lower stock to flow because it's by definition something that is more diluted you will face a relative poverty compared to if you just switch money to harder money. Now, it has been the case that many societies before, they didn't have access to all kinds of monies. And even if you consider gold, which today has a stock flow of 60, let's say, there were areas in which gold had very low stock flow because it was abundant. So it wasn't really a good type of money in those areas. So stock to flow is always important to follow. It's, um, as I said, it's the annual added production to existing stock. And it's important to understand that, so hard money has a high stock to flow. Hard money is not only something that is hard to produce, it is always in relation to the stock. So for example, quicksilver, people have argued, or palladium or these kind of precious metals, they are harder to produce than gold and there, there are less, there's less in existence than gold. So why are they not money? Yeah, well, the stock of them are small. So if you save in that money, the price goes up of this metal, the producers will be able to produce more of it. So even if the, in absolute terms, the units are quite small, the dilution effect will be large. So stock to flow deals with the proper measurement, which is the added flow compared to stock. And it's essentially inflation, I would call it. Now, uh, the now I know you as you know, you know Plan B or what what's whatever is Twitter handle is a uh, hundred trillion uh, dollar yeah. man. I mean, would you do you agree with his uh, with his explanations or with his theory with his model? Um, I mean, do you think it's it will really be? I I still I mean I my personal opinion I think it's even an understatement because we have never it's it's unprecedented. We never had that. We never had Bitcoin. We never had like such a hardest scarcest money ever so maybe it could be an understatement 
I haven't checked his models in detail, but for, they for sure seems, I mean, they, they hit the nail truly, but I, I view it from a little bit more fundamental perspective that whatever has the highest stock to flow will essentially absorb monetary premia from these other monies, like the US dollars, like the euros, and also like gold. So if you can model that, yeah, that, that's great. But even if the model were to show kind of a different effect that it was not possible, I would still argue from a theoretical point, anything that is hard money will absorb the monetary premium from other monies, whatever the models show. Um, but yeah, I'm happy that he continues to do this, uh, this modeling. It, it makes people also think about what stock to flow ratio is and how it can be, how it should be applied to money. And uh, as you said, it might be an understatement. Yeah, I think I'm a little bit more conservative. I see the, the advantages of gold and the disadvantages of gold, but gold is, uh, I mean, a $10 trillion market cap. So Bitcoin is still a little bit over 1% of the market cap of gold. So I, I have gold as a starting point to view how, how much growth there is. Uh, let's start with, uh, with getting 10% of that value and we are at the $1 trillion already uh, and then let's take it from there that's my view yeah sure makes sense um now uh man, i know that uh it i always talk about mass adoption and and, and i stopped talking about it because i mm. now i'm saying you know when i talk about it i, I say like you know what we need is a, like a critical adoption rate and you just previously talked about, you know, yes, you know, each one. I, I myself don't even have a full node yet. I'm still waiting for my Casa too, because yeah. I'm not technical. I don't want to deal with that. I don't have the time, you know, to, you know, do all these updates and a command line, maybe even mm -hmm. and all these things that, you know, can interfere with, with really the average user's um, intellectual or technical level, which I am, to be honest, extrapolating. Uh, that's why, you know, I'm trying to educate people on this progression. Um, um, uh, uh, sort of progression of, of adoption, which which uh, um, uh, Stefan Oliveira always talks about. You know, people go on exchange and they even either get wrecked or, or they you know get reminded maybe you should get a hardware wallet and you get a hardware wallet and after hardware wallet should come the next step, the full mm -hmm. node and then connecting the full node with your wallet. So mm -hmm. we are far away from that. I mean, maybe a fraction of all the users and hodlers might have a a full node, right? Uh, so do you see like a process to this? I mean, how yeah, can the, this is just, uh, for me, it's just a waiting, waiting game because uh, with Bitcoin, you are the custodian of your own money often if you don't keep it on exchanges, which uh, uh, if I ever keep anything on exchanges, it, it's a very small amount. But uh, since you are your own custodian, let's just imagine some, uh, like my mother is not technical. If she were in a Bitcoinization world, she, she was to have her pension. Uh, on a full node or whatever it's not really it's not ideal so with time comes better and better security better user experience experience with security as well i mean using a ledger nano is uh, rather rather easy today or trezor uh, it will become even easier there will be this uh this uh redundant measures uh, that helps you if you do something wrong we have uh, with Bitcoin, there are checksums that if you messes up the address uh, in some ways, you can be protected a little bit so it doesn't get sent to you know, cyberspace somewhere. So th this is a waiting game. It gets better every year. People are building so much on Bitcoin. So, But I don't think it can happen within 
I can't see any hyper-Bitcoinization within, you know, five years or whatever. It's just that it's not going to work with people. I'm a bit more pessimistic. I think it takes a long time and that's fine. It's totally fine. As long as Bitcoin remains the hardest money, the market cap will increase and uh, it, it will become better and better as money as well. I agree with you. But uh, one question, what do you think would happen if unexpected or let's say maybe even foreseeable crisis comes beginning in Europe, recession, uh, you know, high unemployment, whatever, inflation, stagflation, uh, uh, real trade wars or real currency wars, uh, you know, translated into wars and, and stuff like that. I mean, do you see like a tipping point where this could really like, you know, come unexpected and then we, we will see like, a, you know, massive adoption rate? It's uh, possible. I think even if the price of Bitcoin were to decrease in the next crisis that comes, that's just a sign of a misunderstanding that the market kind of misunderstands what Bitcoin is. I have a lot of friends that talk about this effect that they don't believe, they don't have any Bitcoin and they think that in the next crisis, they will see that Bitcoin is a, I don't know what this concept, risk on, risk off asset, that Bitcoin will go down in these kind of events. And if it does, sure, that's just uh, the market. Um, for me, for me it, they don't understand then what money is and what you're using money to. Money is for uncertainty. That's the only reason that we have money. Otherwise, we could just invest all the time, invest in stocks, uh, invest in projects and so on. Money is to have a buffer for the future. So if the, if the world are thrown, is thrown into a crisis, of course, uh, more ice should turn to Bitcoin and it would be logical for people to try to, to get some of their savings into hard money because once the world is in crisis mode, this uh, indebted countries in Europe, for example, need, they need more money. There can be measures that kind of takes, uh, takes taxes through, the, through regular savings or whatever. It's always good to have a little bit in Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, I think no matter what happens in the next crisis with Bitcoin price, the long term is, of course, that it's going to eat the value of, of gold and partially US dollars and euros. For sure. All right. Um, maybe you've seen uh, those discussions also. I mean, I've, uh, you know, previous interviews I did, uh, I have this, you know, this, this, uh, a couple of, of, you know, favorite questions of mine, which I ask my guests. Uh, uh, when you read the Bitcoin standard and, um, and somehow I have the feeling that uh, even the most knowledgeable economists, Austrian economists or Bitcoiners, do you think there's a lack of conviction? I mean, there's a lack of vision, lack of conviction and lack of comprehension, even, you know, what it would mean once, if we had like a real uh, monetary root layering, as I would call it, with Bitcoin, what would change? What, what, what happens to society? What would happen to the average person? Yeah, the, there is a lot of ideas floating around what, how society is operating on sound money or on hard money, how they will look like. And I'm, I'm a firm, firm believer that it will increase output. It will, people will become richer in such a society. And the historical evidence supports this. Safarina Mos brings up, you know, the Florentine Republic, the Venetian Merchant Republic. They had their um, undiluted money. They had gold, uh, gold money that they did not mess with. And it works really well because then all the merchants and all the producers and consumers, they can do proper calculations, what they want to, how they want to spend their own money, 
um, they can make sure that investments are not misallocated and, and all this. So I think it has a, a really a positive effect, but I don't know yet how large effect. And I can tell you, I can tell you why I'm I, I'm not certain because historically there has been, for example, tribes in uh, one one thing that uh, Saifedean also brings up is this glass beads. So we have tribes in uh, Eastern Africa that use glass beads as money, and for a time they were they were actually locally hard money because they were produced all the way in China. They were brought to India by traders from India to the Arabian Peninsula, from the Arabian Peninsula down to Zanzibar and then west into Africa. So it was really, since these Africans couldn't produce the glass beads themselves and nor could their neighbors, they were quite hard money and it still didn't produce the incredible output that we want from, from hard sound money then. Uh, they were of course a, a bit uh, inflationary, these uh, glass beads, because they were still imported even before the Europeans came to mass produce them. So I think it's hard. So sound hard money is really important, but you also need rule of law. You, you need uh, other prerequisites also for a really flourishing society. And uh, a free market is uh, one of these prerequisites. Uh, very little regulation, only the protection of ownership, for example. Um. Yeah, this is yeah fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, because uh, you can, I mean, maybe, do you think we can extrapolate from hard? You know, you know when when Safed Anamus, for example, always talks about you know the golden what do you call it the uh, the, the La Belle Epoque the Belle, Belle Epoque. Uh, you know, and in and one of the f most fascinating chapters is still for me. You know, the where he talks about uh, hard money, easy money, and the uh, the technological innovations which happened during. Uh, for example, mm -hmm. during the gold standard, uh, was it 19th century, and the original sort of the original uh, innovations, and he he's sort of saying that in the 20th century that the the technological innovations happened were just optimization improvements of the old ones, um, and which makes total sense to me. And I'm like, uh, maybe we can zoom out a little bit even more um, because I'm an optimist. I mean, I, I'm I'm a total optimist. I I see Bitcoin as the really rooted structure for everything else. Because first of all, it's about the separation of state, government, and uh, you know, central bank and collusion, of course, and money separated from everything else. It's mm -hmm. totally decentralized, it's open, it's hard, it's, it's uh, immutable, it's whatever, fungible, uh, recognizable, divisible, whatever all these features, and maybe, we, maybe you, can, you can list some more. Um, but I can I see a little bit more than that. I have a little uh, maybe I have a more um, I don't know uh, bigger vision for for the society in ho as a to as a totality. No, I think uh, you are correct in this sense. I mean, <clears throat> sound money will have other externalities than just than just uh, a higher output of production. Like it will mean more for society than just uh, more money. Uh, Saifedean almost speaks about this uh, time preference, for example, and how this can, can help get shifted. I also heard some stories about people experiencing really high inflation in various countries and how their sense of money was changed, that they were running to spend it quickly. And this kind of builds, uh, for them, individual at least, it built a culture to, to spend quickly. I mean, even in times when uh, maybe there was not that high inflation. So it has other externalities, uh, bad externalities as well, inflation. So I'm for sure certain that 
societies under hard money like Bitcoin or the gold standard would function better in many regards. And one of the, but one of the, one of the best, you know, advantages of such a system is that we don't have this, this uh, really destructive events every hundred years where some party come to power or some king or whatever, and they really destroy the wealth that people have been building for generations. We have seen this so many times in uh, also in, in our proximity in France, for example, here in Europe, they managed to do it twice in uh, within a hundred years. First with the John Law, uh, and then uh, with the Assignat exp experiment. So, <laughs> one of the advantages with Bitcoin and gold for me, or hard money, is that you really invalidates these risks that suddenly some entity managed to mass produce it and causes an incredibly incredible carnage everywhere with confiscations executions all this shit that we have seen so that for me is like a bigger win uh, than even if i were to change my my time preference yeah that's fine too but we get rid of these really uh, destructive events yeah exactly so um uh, let me yeah, let me let me spin this a little bit uh, further uh, with you because uh, this is really fascinating. So what I think is that you know a lot of these centralized mm. oligopoly monopolistic structures are going to dissolve by itself. It it will just become obsolete in the long run. But that, what that would mean for society, I think it hasn't even been really thought through in a positive way. I mean, you know, I mean, how many technological innovations have been suppressed? in the last hundred years, patented or confiscated, seized in the name of national security? How many oligopolies, monopolistic corporate structures do we have? Beginning with the military industrial complex. I mean, I'm just talking about, you know, we need a, monet we need a monetary structure, a root system that really helps you talk about, you know, prosperity and thriving, uh, you know, prosperous society, but how can we achieve that? That, that is only possible once every, the whole, you know, uh, the soil has been, you know, uh, detoxified, sort of. Do you see it in a similar way? I, I do. Um, I think uh, I have a little bit harder time to imagine exactly what, uh, what this will mean, but I certainly share your optimism that having hard money solves many things, and uh, I think it can also it can also make people change their view about money. Now it's really common to spout this nonsense that money is debt we owe to ourselves, or money is a you know a social construction and all this. And those kind of those kind of currents lead to lead to other weird thinking. You know that money can be collectively collectively divided you know socialist policies and all this so if we have hard money sound money emerging from a free market like bitcoin i think people then can realize that if the state is not needed with money maybe it's not needed also in other areas uh, there's uh, yeah we'll see we'll see what comes from that but for one thing that bitcoin has done it's it's forced thousands of people all around the world to really think about what money is and very few did it before that. I never thought about what money is. You know, you had your natural money and that's it. You, but now you are researching the, the nature of money, the properties of money, how you can destroy money and so on. 
Yeah, it's really amazing. You know, for the first time, people like myself, I mean, I would have never started learning about what money is in the first place. Mm-hmm. And most people do that. I mean, I, I met some guy from Denmark. He said he, he's in Bitcoin since 2011 or 2012. And he came actually through a friend of his because of the libertarian principles. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, too, you know, how people find their path into Bitcoin. And I think this is... Uh, a, you know, not only one, but, you know, a, a spectrum of paradigm shifts and, and in understanding and, and perception, uh, you know, about ourselves, about society, about entrepreneurship, productivity, growth, um, uh, incentives, and really growing value um, individually and collectively. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um... So is there anything else like you, you, you think people should be educated about or should, you know, go into the rabbit hole themselves? Yeah, the most important thing that people should educate themselves on is, uh, honestly, I think it is hard money, easy money. We have talked a bit about this uh, and it might sound boring to some, but it's really essential because if you end up holding easy money, you will face two choices. Either you will hold on to that easy money once some strangers mass produce it, or you have to switch to a harder money. Those are the two choices. So you better like always make sure that you hold, you're holding at least some of your savings in the hardest money possible to, achieve, to reach for you. Uh, and this is, uh, if you don't believe me, just look at all these articles that I've, I've written about this, this dynamic. This dynamic has been seen everywhere, and that's why the world went from 100 monies to only two. It was no, it's not random that we went that way. Money disappeared, money were demonetized, and a lot of people got poor in the process because they failed to change to the harder money. And I think this is, uh, people should educate themselves on this. It's a very important dynamic to understand, and it's also important for a lot of these uh, shitcoiners to understand this, that when you deal with all the altcoins, you can bet that all of them are easy money and Bitcoin is the hard money. So why would you, since these old kinds of coins are more centralized, it, they have a higher probability of getting diluted in the future. So that's, that's the bet that you take when you hold them, dilution. Uh, so I, I think that's important. And we have seen this you know, explosion of the number of altcoins uh, these last uh, two years or whatever. Now there are, many thousands, almost no, no one with liquidity, but still, there are thousands. And I think that in the future, we will kind of see a, a reversal effect because the, the same effect that we're taking out seashells and furs and cows and camels as money, the same effect will make, it felt, make itself felt within the cryptocurrency space. That people, people will have a choice to make. Either they hold easy shit coins or they, have, they hold hard Bitcoin, yeah. Um, that's interesting. Um, isn't it? So do you think uh, like psychologically, I don't know how to put it, uh, socially, emotionally, um, it's like a real um, transformation. Like people need to, first of all, take upon self-responsibility i mean it starts you know with with hodling i mean you you gotta really uh, be self-responsible you gotta take responsibility for your own stuff uh, do you think this is uh, um, this and many other factors are are keeping people away or or are somehow people are just too ignorant or i don't know what what is it that that it's the pain is not there yet what what is it that is 
is not triggering this process of, of you know, mass education and, and, and mass adoption or whatever you want to call it? I think in general, people's lives are rather busy. They work long hours, they come home to the kids, they're tired. And as long as you know, people like you are making podcasts and there, there is more and more material out there to learn, to listen to, uh, to educators and to read books that really consolidates ideas in a good way. Before it was rather, money is not so easy subject. Uh, so we need people that try to, to, um, to make it uh, more understandable, to explain it in, in good ways. And uh, we will gradually see a better and better education in this, uh, this regard. Since before we didn't really have a choice with regards to money, before Bitcoin, um, since we didn't have a choice, it, it didn't make much sense to learn more about money. You held your national currency or in the best case, you had some access to gold, for example. But that's it. Now you have, a, now you have choices. Now the free market is more at work with regards to money. So it makes a little bit more sense now to actually learn about how money works and which money you should use when you save your wealth. Okay, let me final, uh, for the final conclusion, let me ask you, um, Bazant, what, what's your, what is your vision? I mean, do you think we're, we're going to stop talking about money and just, you know, it's, it's whatever it is, medium of exchange, store of value, unit of account. Okay, everything is going to be there. Let's just say it's going to be there. It's going to be really rooted. And we're going to be just natural in a natural way, just be transacting, working, producing, growing, thriving, and, uh, and creating and be really technologically innovative. I think that the discussions with regards to money will uh, increase in scope. Uh, there will be more and more people who will argue about money, and that's good. There will be easier and easier to see which ones have just ridiculous claims uh, about money. I mean, even some Nobel Prize winners are spouting nonsense on Twitter. And Bitcoiners who have thought about money for years uh, really can see how ridiculous it sounds. And these guys got a Nobel Prize. And um, yeah, so I think that the discussions that we have around money, it forces, it makes us all better educated about the subject. And we, we understand it better and better. I, I don't think the discussions will end because there will always be some distinctions. Me, for example, I'm not a big fan of the word store of value because in the Austrian school, the value is something subjective and you can't, you can't promise value in something. Uh, and then there will be other Austrians that kind of argue another way that it's semantics. So there will always be things to discuss and I'm happy for it. Um, I always wish to try to understand money better and better. And we are, most of us are beginners uh, with, with it all. I, I for sure am. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, Vesan. So, um, anything else? Like any final thoughts? Um, um, or where can um, they find you? Can read about you? Or uh, any any kind of uh, like last pieces of information you think is really, uh, you know? My articles uh, are on uh, medium.com and they're also on my webpage, bdratings.org. Mm -hmm. I will continue to write uh, about Austin economics. Uh, I will finish the, this uh, summaries of principles of economics by Karl Menger. I really suggest you read the whole book. You don't have to read my summaries because they are not needed. Read the book because after a while you really get into the, the language and, and Menger's uh, type of writing. And he has so fantastic examples where he uses, you know, farmers, horse farmers and wood farmers and all this. Um, it's really simple examples to understand. 
I will finish that one. Then I will uh, start to read more about uh, various kind of primitive monies. I'm actually researching coral as money right now. It's uh, one type of money that few people have spoken about, but I found some references in in the, the writings of medieval travelers like uh, Ibn Battuta, an Arabian uh, traveler. I've found some of it in uh, Marco Polo. has a lot of reference to monies. So there, there's always this kind of things to, to write more about. Um, but uh, if, if I should summarize, I want my articles to really, really make the point that you have to think about hard and easy money. It's the, it's the main purpose that I write them. Uh, I, want you to, I want people to think why did salt money exist and why doesn't it exist anymore? Because it's very important. Right. So um, let me just uh, one final question, because I, um, if you remember, I had that interview with um, uh, Carly Rosenbaum. OK. Um, I want to know your perspective, your perception. What's, what's the situation like in Sweden? I mean, uh, with Bitcoin, how, what are people like? I mean, uh, what's the attitude towards Bitcoin? Or the, the general attitude, even I have a lot of friends in finance and, uh, you know, from economic background from the banks and they are rather skeptical i would say there's a there's a view that okay even if the money is inflationary which most of our national monies are just invest in stocks bro it's the general attitude but but they don't realize that when i take my money and i buy stocks equity there's some other one getting my money so what should he then do with his money should he also follow the advice and buy stock and buy stock i mean it just triggers this uh, perpetual bubble so a society can't get rid of money and it's really you know concerning when you hear people you were studying with for five years in you know good uh, economic schools um, that they argue that the, the solution to inflation is just to invest because uh, it's basically the same as saying that we don't need money in a society so i would say the situation here is probably like anywhere else uh, um, yeah, there, there's a deep misunderstanding, but people are slowly learning what, what uh, money is and, uh, and that inflation is not always uh, necessary or that inflation, according to me, is never necessary for anything. Interesting. Yeah, very. thanks for the insight. So, yeah, that's about it. Um, if you don't have any other ideas, uh, thoughts or um, to share or info, then we can wrap this up. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Kevin. Yeah, it was fun. I really enjoyed this, and because it went a little bit out of the box, and which I love <laughs> these kind of talks. So um, yeah, hope to get you soon back, maybe a one-on-one or a panel discussion. Yeah, I would be happy to. All righty. Okay, take care. Bye bye. Welcome to the podcast show by Kevin Davani, the Total Connector, Total Bitcoin, Awesome Economics the hardest and scarcest money ever created in human history, Bitcoin.